Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. On the heels of a disease that virtualized much of life, the After Virtual Conference today focuses on health. Ph.D. Adam Smith, a lover of wordplay and Alistair McIntyre, looks at medicine after virtue. M.D. Brian Volk invokes Wendell Berry early and often in his critique of the medical-industrial complex. And the conference powers that be also kept the recorder running a bit longer this time. And so we will share the comments, questions, and answers that followed where readers of Mr. Berry will likely embrace a familiar story. We pick things up with Front Porch Republic's Editor-in-Chief, Jeff Bilbro, introducing the session. Uh, Maybe some of you saw Adam Smith's essay in the spring issue of Local Culture, or last fall, Civil Sense. This spring. Yeah, so it's out uh, on the back table, on, the, on our book table. Uh, very good essay, and uh, he did his, his dissertation on public health before, the philosophy thereof, uh, before COVID times. So great. And then, of course, Brian, whom I think may have the distinction of uh, having the first substantive book review of Wendell Berry's Need to Be Whole, which came out this week in uh, Christian Century. So check that out. Uh, but Brian is a doctor, so he there's not very many doctors who also are as well-versed as he is in Wendell Berry and have thought about the human side of medicine. So I think it's going to be a great conversation. Uh, I'll let them speak in turn, and then we will open it up, and you guys can pepper them with the hard questions. Thank you, Jeffrey, for inviting me. Uh, I was surprised at the After Virtual Conference that nobody until me has talked about After Virtue. So I'm, I guess I'm the first to make that joke, and I thought I'd start with a few sentences from that famous closing paragraph of After Virtue, where McIntyre talks about the, the new dark age and waiting for St. Benedict and all that. And uh, what he said was this. A crucial turning point in that earlier history occurred when men and women of goodwill turned aside from the task of shoring up the Roman Imperium and ceased to identify the continuation of civility and moral community with the maintenance of that Imperium. What they set themselves to achieve instead, often not recognizing fully what they were doing, was the construction of local forms of community within which civility and the intellectual and moral life can be sustained through the new dark ages which are already upon us. So what I wanted to do is to spend most of my time thinking about Uh, This question, how would we expect the practice of medicine to work in this new dark age that we are apparently living in? What does medicine after virtue look like? Uh, And this, I think, will raise for us a second question, although I think Brian will do a lot more to answer this than I could. As usual, philosophers just criticize things that don't offer solutions. But (laughs) what would it mean to turn aside from shoring up the Imperium and build local forms of community in which medicine could be practiced differently? less barbarically, more virtuously, so to speak. How do we recover the lost goods of medicine? So the first question first, what would we expect medicine after virtue to look like? And you won't be surprised if I suggest that medicine after virtue looks pretty much like the medicine that we have, and the medicine that I am probably more familiar with than I want to, not due to my own health problems, but due to certain problems that my wife has faced for the past 10 years. First. I think medicine in the new dark age turns from a practice supported by an institution into an institution that colonizes a practice. Second, I think we should expect to see that this institution will turn pretty much everything into a medical problem. So we get institutionalization and then we get medicalization. And I should apologize or just clarify, I think it was Jeff Paulette earlier was talking about, you know, it's a time to build, it's a time to build institutions. But I'm really following McIntyre's you know, terminology, trying to use his book as a frame here. It has a kind of technical meaning. I'm not saying institutions are bad, but I am saying institutions that consume the practices they're meant to support can go very bad, or at least that's what McIntyre's saying. Let's think first about this phrase, the practice of medicine. We still talk like this sometimes. We talk about doctors practicing medicine, setting up a practice like lawyers. 
but I don't know how much of the old meaning is left in it. Almost 70% of American doctors now work for hospitals and corporations who've been buying up independent practices for decades now. And of course, the response to the pandemic accelerated this trend as it accelerated every other bad trend. Seems like more and more we don't even talk about doctors and nurses. We talk instead about healthcare professionals, sort of like how they call the cashiers at Walmart Associates. One makes more money than the other, but I'm not really sure they're practicing anything. If you've read McIntyre, you know that the idea of a practice is at the center of his argument about virtue and about what comes after it's gone. In fact, he defines virtue in terms of practice. You can't have one without the other. People acquire specific virtues by practicing certain things together with other people, and practices have to be built and sustained by people who have the right virtues. And if you want a definition, here's his. A virtue is an acquired human quality, the possession and exercise of which tends to enable us to achieve those goods which are internal to practices and the lack of which effectively prevents us from achieving any such goods. Goods which are internal to practices. This is the key idea. But I don't think it's a difficult one. I think it's easy to understand it if we just think about what it means to cheat. So you take a practice like running marathons. There is an internal good, which is to win the race, and you need certain virtues to achieve it, which you cultivate by running a lot. If you win the race, you get a trophy, maybe some money too. But it's possible to get the trophy by cheating. You could just get in a car halfway down the course, drive to the finish line, get out and cross it before anybody else. And if you don't get caught, you get the goods. Trophies are external goods. They have nothing intrinsically to do with the practice of running. When people get the external goods without achieving the internal goods, this is what we call cheating. Cheating is a literal lack of virtue. It does not involve the exercise of the virtues specific to the practice. McIntyre practices uh, practi contrasts practices to institutions, which are sets of rules designed to enable certain practices and the virtues that go with them. Rules in this sense are about incentives and disincentives. You know, the person who crosses the finish line gets the trophy. That's the rule. But uh, the trophy is supposed to motiv motivate people to train hard and achieve excellence. But when we think about cheating, we can see that incentives can also motivate us to avoid training hard. There's a balance that has to be struck here. Without institutions, many people won't be motivated to engage in the practice in the first place, which means they won't have the chance to develop virtue. But institutions can also vitiate practice or replace it altogether. And this is part of McIntyre's analysis of what's happened. Our institutions are metastasizing while our practices are withering. We have a lot of rule following and a lot of rule breaking, but little virtue. This is his description of the new dark age. It's the age of institutionalization. It's the age of cheating. I think it's easy to see this happening in medicine, where the kind of medicine that used to be practiced is literally being sold off to gigantic medical institutions. And these institutions seem to be characterized by two things. One, a bureaucrat's obsession with making sure that human resources are in compliance, and a CEO's obsession with making a lot of money, which they can do just as well by making the rules, what we call regulatory capture, as by breaking them, what we call fraud. On the one hand, you get healthcare professionals spending most of the time ticking boxes made up by insurance companies, and you get charity care hospitals hiring bill collectors. You get the medicine we all know and hate, but can't do without, because it seems like there's no practical alternative, as in there's nowhere we can turn to find medicine being practiced by people who have the virtues required to pursue the goods internal to medicine. But what are those goods? This is the main thing I actually want to talk about. The first thing to say is that whenever institutions undermine the practices they're supposed to support, one of the consequences is that it gets harder to answer that question. Institutionalization makes it harder to remember what the practice is for. Why run when everybody takes a car? Eventually, nobody remembers. So we should expect that this question might be hard for us to answer now, and that it will take a lot of work of the imagination, a lot of thinking and talking, a lot of reading through history and tradition to recover our sense for these lost goods. But the second thing to say is that when it comes to medicine in particular, it will be especially hard to admit this. 
It'll be hard to admit that we have forgotten the point because in medicine, the point seems so completely obvious. Even more than in education, for example, where we sense more quickly the possibility of confusion or genuine disagreement. The internal good of medicine is just health, right? Medicine is supposed to promote health, and everybody knows what health is. It's very immediate, not, a, not abstract, unlike the goal of education, which is what? The liberation of the soul? But in medicine, we're talking about the body. So it should be easier. It's something you can see, something you can feel. Doctors and nurses need whatever virtues are required to pursue this obvious good called health. It seems every bit as easy as understanding the point of running a marathon, which some of you probably don't understand at all. But. Well, I don't either, actually. <laughs> Normally, I'd agree with you, even though I'm a philosophy professor and it's my job to insist that obvious things are not obvious and to talk about whether chairs are really chairs and stuff like that. <laughs> but when it comes to the concept of health, you may have noticed that it is not just philosophy professors who are out there avoiding the obvious. No, there seems to be a much more general confusion and disagreement about what health really is which means there's much more general confusion or disagreement about what the internal good of medicine really is. Puberty, for example, is apparently now considered to be some kind of health issue, a medical problem with a medical solution. This is the second thing, then, that we would expect to see in medicine after virtue. We'd expect to see the rampant medicalization of more and more human experiences, which not so long ago would never have been understood as medical problems to be solved by medical institutions. We'd expect to see what one of my mentors and many other people called simply the medicalization of everything, everything from love and sex to grief and death. And I thought that I would go back to that issue that Jeffrey mentioned and read through the list that I put there of things that have been or have been uh, thought to, things that have been observed to be under the process of being medicalized. This is a really interesting exercise. This is old. You could do it again. But if you just go to Google and you type in medicalization of, and then you go through every alphabet, every letter of the alphabet, it will amaze you. Here are some things that have been medicalized or that people are calling for uh, medicalization of. Abusive behavior, addiction, aging, alcoholism, America, anorexia, anxiety, architecture, baseball, battered women, beauty, breastfeeding, cancer, capital punishment, child abuse, childbirth, childhood, chronic diseases, circumcision, climate skepticism, clothing, <laughs> conception, criminal behavior, cyber state, space, death, depression, deviance, disability, disabled African bodies, Distress, domestic violence, eating, eating disorders, education, elite equine care, <laughs> Europe, everyday life, everything, evil, female genital mutilation, food, gambling, grief, health. You get the idea. I could go all the way to Z, or actually just Y. I guess there's no Z. Y is yoga. So... <clears throat> This, I think, is what we should expect to see with the loss of a practical understanding of the good that we're seeking. When we lose that practical understanding, then the only limits to what we can throw into that box labeled health are technical limits, which we have every institutional incentive to overcome. The only reason we can't label love as a medical issue is our failure so far to produce a love potion. Oh, but have you heard of oxytocin nasal sprays, which can enhance feelings of affection? Why not have marriage therapists prescribe them to troubled couples, as has been seriously suggested by supposed bioethicists? See, it's not enough to be able to say what the internal good of a practice is. You also have to be able to say what things are included in the good and what are not. Otherwise, you can just smuggle whatever bureaucratic wish lists and consumerist whims you want into the category. So the question here is, how do we find out what's good? If we want to recover lost goods, we'll have to grapple with the problem that once the goods are lost, once the institutions have destroyed the practices where we come to understand and learn how to pursue those goods, we might forget what they look like and what they don't look like. Even when it comes to things like health and sickness, which we might suppose are just matters of common sense, intuition, biological fact. Now, as a philosopher, 
Maybe I want to say that if you want to recover your sense of what the lost good of medicine is, you have to be a philosopher and you have to do the conceptual work and draw the right distinctions and chop all the logic. But one of the key points here, one of McIntyre's key points, is that the confusion and disagreement about the good, the good of medicine and so many other practices that we've been talking about in other sessions here, come from the loss of the practice itself, from the institutionalization of medicine. What we're talking about here is not just a failure of logic, it's a failure of community. But a failure to do what exactly? What's going wrong when a community, even the community of practitioners, because it's not mainly laypersons, but mostly professionals who think this way. What's going wrong when professionals start thinking of something like puberty as a health problem? What mistake did they make in their attempt to say what the good called health really is? Another key aspect of the New Dark Ages is that it is rife with what, with what McIntyre famously labeled emotivism. Emotivism is the claim that there is no objective truth about what's good and bad for people, that the only way we can answer ethical questions is by pointing to subjective values, feelings of I like this, I don't like this, whims, in other words. Emotivism says we cannot make ethical judgments about what is objectively good for us, good for us whether we like it or not, bad for us even if we do like it. This, of course, is the water we all swim in, the sophomore relativist in all of our classrooms for those of us who teach. The thing about emotivism is that while it reduces ethical questions to the goods about the goods of social practices to questions about the preferences of private individuals, thus liberating those individuals from the bonds of those practices, it simultaneously empowers institutions at the expense of practices and leads to the bureaucratic oppression of the supposedly liberated individuals. And this is because, in an emotivist society, to quote McIntyre, no type of authority can appeal to rational criteria to vindicate itself except that type of bureaucratic authority which appeals precisely to its own effectiveness. And what this appeal reveals is that bureaucratic authority is nothing other than successful power. End quote. I like to call emotivism the great rush from judgment. We normally worry about rushing to judgment, and I think our problem is the opposite. We rush from judgment. It's a rush away from judgment toward feelings, to be sure, but it is also and simultaneously a rush away from judgment toward facts, which are value-free and are thus loved by bureaucracies which derive their power from their promise of neutrality. Emotivist societies worship feelings and facts together, like some double-headed god. And what is lost in such societies is any sense of the difference between facts and feelings on the one hand and judgments about objective values on the other. For emotivists, feelings and facts are the only legitimate answer to all questions. And the thing I want to emphasize is that when it comes to medicine, emotivism is especially powerful, especially convincing. When it comes to understanding what a medical problem is and thus what the good of medicine is, it's easy to conclude that all we need are facts and feelings because in the vast majority of cases, facts and feelings happen to coincide and the answer is common sense. The broken arm feels bad and also there are biological facts that explain the broken arm and how it affects the body and so on and so forth and that's enough, right? No one is confused or disagrees about whether a broken arm is a health problem. Only philosophers would do such a thing. That's true, but the effect is this. We easily overlook what we're actually saying when we say a broken arm is a health problem, a lack of health, and that the good of medicine is to fix the broken arm and to help us heal. What we actually mean when we call the broken arm a medical problem is that having a broken arm is bad for us as human beings, that it's bad for us whether we like it or not, and that it's being bad for us has nothing to do with whether medicine can fix it or not. And before you insist that no one would ever like to have a broken arm, there are people who actually do like, if not having a broken arm, than having no arm at all. They are called voluntary amputees, and medicine can fix them pretty easily using the various facts at its technical disposal. Cut the arm off, feel like your true self. Only in the rush from judgment, only in this cult of the twin god of facts and feelings can people, many of whom are doctors, say, I feel like puberty is a medical problem. And the fact is, medicine can block puberty, therefore it is. But now I want to call your attention back to McIntyre's description of the New Dark Age. 
Later in the passage, he says that in contrast to the original Dark Age, the barbarians we face, quote, have already been governing us for some time. The medicalization of puberty is obviously the cutting edge of the phenomenon, but the, one of the most egregious cases of medicalization that I know of comes from the mid-19th century, before the Civil War, and I think it's a very instructive case. It helps us to understand how medicalization works and exactly what the stakes can be. Samuel Cartwright was a doctor in Louisiana. He was not a quack, which is very important for me to say up front. He was highly respected, well-published, very mainstream physician, graduated from the University of Pennsylvania, studied with Benjamin Rush, one of the founding fathers. He was one of the front row, to quote our last speaker. In 1851, he published an article titled, Diseases and Peculiarities of the Negro Race, in which he explained the very strange tendency of slaves to run away from plantations. He revealed that runaways were to suffering from drapetomania, which is a term he made up, meaning the disease causing slaves to run away. <laughs> now, this is obviously ridiculous, but it's well worth your time to go look up the article and read it and follow the logic of it closely. Typical response of the modern person who follows the science is to say something like, well, that's what happens when you deny facts. But Cartwright didn't deny any biological facts. True, he didn't have any facts. <laughs> he said something was wrong with the runaway's brains, but he didn't check to see, nor could he have. But haven't you heard about these MRI machines that can scan our brains, where they can pinpoint the part of your brain that does X, Y, and Z? With modern technology, it should be possible to locate this thing in the brain that Cartwright identified explicitly as a medical problem, the slave's desire for freedom. Would that fact show that it was a medical problem? If we could cure it, maybe with some drugs or a lobotomy, should we? Of course not, but why not? The next response of the modern person who, when not following the science, is very keen to validate everybody's feelings, is to say that the slave desire for freedom wasn't a medical problem because the slave wanted to be free. And that's true, but that's also not enough. The master didn't want the slave to be free. That was his feeling. And because one of the worst evils of slavery is that people sometimes come to accept their condition, some slaves didn't want to be free. So whose feeling wins? If it's just feelings, it's power game. The feeling of the one with the most power is the most valid feeling. Cartwright was not wrong because he denied facts or invalidated feelings. He was wrong because he made the wrong judgment about this desire for freedom. He said the slave's feeling was bad for him. That's wrong. It was good for the slave to want to be free, and it was bad for the master to not want the slave to be free. But that's a judgment about a feeling, not a feeling. The other thing about Cartwright's article is that the whole thing, and you really have to read it, the whole thing is about compassion, seriously. The point is that if the runaway has a medical problem, then the master isn't justified in being mad at him. Cartwright rebukes masters who aren't professional, who aren't up on the latest science, who fail to feel proper concern. The slave cannot be blamed. Instead, he needs treatment. He needs compassion, which happened to include whipping it out of them. But that's for their own good, of course. The point of the diagnosis was to justify and to energize the institution of slavery. Slavery is good because it provides access to health care for people suffering from this horrible condition, this thing in their brains that makes them so unhappy. We could talk a lot more about that case, but I hope it gives you a very stark sense of what we're talking about when we're talking about medicalization and institutionalization. Facts and feelings are the warp and the woof of institutions, which as institutions, institutions divorced from practices tend to eliminate and finally to prohibit judgments altogether. Practices, on the other hand, are oriented toward the pursuit of goods which practitioners come to understand by making, contesting, and accepting judgments about what is objectively good. Any talk about whether there are objective standards we can use to determine whether something is a problem in the first place, medical or otherwise, well, that sounds pretty judgmental, doesn't it? Not very compassionate. It's a good thing we have institutions to protect us. 
So what can be done to recover our sense of the internal good of the practice of medicine? Now that medicine has been institutionalized and the institutional in institution has medicalized everything. McIntyre says we have to construct local forms of community where recovery can happen. How do we do this? What would this look like? And like I said, I think Brian will speak more to this than I can, but the simple answer is to reverse what I just said. It would look first of all like an effort to demedicalize. I think it might help to think of demedicalizing as similar actually to all the decolonizing that is very popular on college campuses. Like decolonizing, demedicalizing is about actively resisting habits of thinking that have been planted in our brains by people who gain institutional power by having people think of more and more things as medical problems. The resistance is active in the sense that it is not just a critique. It is the offering of and the insistence on an alternative. A good example is the demedicalization of childbirth by people who choose home birth. There is certainly a critique of set of arguments to be made about why it is bad to medicalize childbirth, but there is also the important work of creating a practical alternative by training and building networks of midwives, figuring out financing, worrying over the details of what to do if there are emergencies and it does become necessary to go to the hospitals, etc. What we can do then is to take a look at all the things that have been or are being medicalized, and we could talk a lot about what has been medicalized over the past two years by public health in particular and think with our neighbors about what it might look to demedicalize them. Home birth is already fairly established as an alternative. What would it look like, for example, to further demedicalize death, to take dying out of the hospital and back into the home? More broadly, what does it look like to reject the idea, the idea that grief is a condition that we have, a noun, a thing that happens to us, and to develop instead our capacity to grieve, a verb, something we do and take responsibility for doing, something we practice together with others who are doing the same thing with the same good in mind. And it would look, second, like an effort to deinstitutionalize medicine, to make medicine into a practice supported by an institution rather than an institution that consumes the practice. For one of the marks of a practice is precisely that it is bounded by the internal goods that constitute it and that it does not seek to extend its domain past those limits. An institution, when it has colonized the practice it was supposed to support, will do exactly what we see medicine doing, in pursuit of external goods that have nothing to do with the practice. And we can think about how much sheer profit there is to be made by expanding the number of things that can be diagnosed and insured and treated with drugs and surgeries. In pursuit of those external goods, it will expand beyond its purview at every point. The recovery of goods means the recovery of the limits imposed by those goods. These two things do not have to happen in sequence. Demedicalizing is like decolonizing in that it is about changing how we think and talk and feel about things, and deinstitutionalizing is more about setting up practical alternatives, forms of social life, actual organizations, actual medical practices that look different from the giant institutions that are more and more organized around the external goods of profit and power. But for McIntyre, thinking differently is a practical matter. It happens in the context of social practices, and social practices must be revived and reformed by and created by people who are thinking differently. So we don't, we don't need to solve a chicken and an egg problem here. We just need to get to work and do what we can. Thank you. Brian Volk. Well, as Adam was talking, I was um, nodding in vigorous agreement to most of what he said, except for when he said he, th he thinks that I will have more practical solutions. Uh, I'm not, I'll let you be the judge of that. <clears throat> my, uh, my talk is uh, entitled Hospitality, Responsibility, and Presence, Practicing Medicine as if Bodies Actually Mattered. And um, unlike Jason, I may have to point out that it's okay to laugh on occasion <laughs> if something sounds some, some, somewhat uh, sarcastic or humorous. Uh, I probably meant it that way. Earlier this month, in preparing to teach a course on Wendell Berry, I was fumbling with the technology used to address learners in person and online simultaneously, a combination some of my colleagues have named Room and Zoom. When, as so often happens, the computer failed to carry out the task I intended, I attempted a few workaround fixes to no avail, 
before resorting, resorting to the definitive re remedy, rebooting the system. As I waited for my various launch agent gugas and plug-in bagatelles to bubble to the surface of my laptop screen, I turned to one of my colleagues watching my struggle with a look of bemused recognition and said, like I used to tell the residents on rounds, if all else fails, examine the patient. <laughs> the layers of situational irony nesting within each other like Russian dolls did not entirely uh, elude me. Messing with computers to teach a class on Wendell Berry to students scattered across a continent was bad enough. <laughs> Making a joke that suggested, however, implicitly anything more than a passing resemblance between human body and machine left me queasy. For years, I fought against that pernicious metaphor and its monstrous cousin that the brain is nothing more than a meat computer. As Barry says about such things, a, meta a metaphor must always be, quote, controlled by a sort of humorous intelligence, always mindful of the exact limits within which the comparison is meaningful. When, he continues, a metaphor begins to control intelligence, as this one of the machine has done has for a long time, then we must look for costly distortions and absurdities. That the medical industrial complex is rife with costly distortions and absurdities is beyond doubt. And technology bears a significant portion of the blame. But before I continue, I should clarify my terms. I use the phrase medical industrial complex to signify that conjunction of political, economic, scientific, technological, educational, and social interests, institutions, and investments that make the US healthcare system the most expensive in the world, despite its relatively poor public health outcomes when compared to other economically developed countries. By technology, I mean not so much the expensive electronic gadgetry that shortens your hospital stay while inflating your medical bill, but the way of seeing the material world, including our material bodies, as a standing reserve to be manipulated as we wish. And you may recognize the ghost of Heidegger there. Therein lies the source of any new medical machine's unexpected consequences. By making some things easier to do than others, new technologies like unexamined metaphors control our intelligence while colonizing our moral judgment. For example, who could have anticipated the introduction of prenatal ultrasound machines would drastically alter the ratio of boys to girls born in South and East Asia in the late 20th century. That wasn't what they were designed for, but that's what it did. Similarly, anyone familiar with the history of American bioethics will recall how the advent of hemodialysis led to heated discussions about who did or did not deserve access to this life-sustaining machinery. It seems technological innovation in an economy of scarcity reduces most questions to a version of the trolley problem, that ethical chestnut that pauses a rogue streetcar hurtling towards unsuspected, unsuspecting pedestrians and assumes that I know enough about light rail equipment to do something about it. <laughs> the, key, the key question then is something like, do I send the out of control trolley down line one where it will mow down three people I don't know or down or, or onto line two or, or kill only one person who happens to be my wife. I'll let the utilitarians and deontologists among you hash that one out. I, however, consider most variations of the trolley problem to be silly, since real life rarely provides moments of such simultaneous clarity and control. Furthermore, the popularity of the trolley problem betrays the cloaked neoliberal or origins of secular American bioethics which for all its flowery language about justice and non-maleficence, non which I can't pronounce and none of you can actually spell, <laughs> really worships at the altars of autonomy and efficacy and favors those who have the agency and tools to get what they want. That's why when most of us hear the term medical ethics, we tend to think of technology-heavy puzzles at the margins of life, embryonic stem cells, prenatal diagnosis and selective elimination of the so-called defective, physician-assisted suicide, and so on. Matters that the late Paul Farmer called quandaries of the fortunate. Bioethics has very little to say about those who lack agency, the world's poor, the intellectually disabled, selected groups among the politically voiceless. Within the medical industrial complex, 
All patients are equal, but some are more equal than others. Compared to the bioethical riddles I've just mentioned, it's hard to get worked up about virtual doctor visits and pandemic -induced, the pandemic-induced boom in telemedicine. In some ways, these are salutary practices whose time was long in coming. From my experience with indigenous child health care, I know how challenging it is to provide quality subspecialty care, such as mental health services in rural areas. When this was a problem limited to the boondocks, it was nearly impossible to persuade insurance companies to cover these services. The COVID pandemic changed all that. Virtual visits kept vast swaths of the medical industrial complex afloat during the worst of the pandemic, making it possible for suburban and urban patients to see a healthcare provider without risk of contagion. Given the outsized role that patient history, lab data, and imaging play in the American approach to medical diagnosis, the inability to examine the patient's body struck many providers as a very small price to play, pay for ongoing outpatient care. More to the point, the insurance sector of the complex, most importantly, the Center for Medico Medicare and Medicaid Services, suddenly saw reasons to pony up for online medical visits, even across state lines and in the absence of existing patient-physician relationships. Telemedicine finally found a way to pay or nearly pay for itself. I can't predict the long-term future of telemedicine, as I used to tell uh, parents who said, so what's the outcome of whatever's going on with my child? And I used to say, my ability to predict the future isn't what it used to be. Um, I expect, however, that telemedicine will persist in some form from now on. So will at-home diagnostic testing, online exposure risk calculators, and the expedited approval of certain vaccines and pharmaceuticals. These have, I think, secured their place in healthcare as we know it. But when Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps is doing television commercials for virtual psychotherapy visits, you know there's clearly money to be made. But is there? to borrow from the meeting's title, a loss good to be recovered from the apparent triumph, however qualified, of virtual medical visits and Zoom consultations. Now, I wouldn't have been invited if I were likely to say no. <laughs> but I hope my reasoning for the continued primacy of the face-to-face -face medical visit will be at least of some interest. First and foremost, as a physician, I'm inclined to think that the body is in fact a good thing, a creaturely given of some importance. This may sound self-evident, but in an era where the body is increasingly viewed as an envelope to be reconfigured according to the dictates of the autonomous choosing will, perhaps it isn't so obvious at all. When I hear people talking about health, well-being, and even identity as a product of mind, I'm reminded of St. John Henry Newman, who, when asked by his bishop the seemingly straightforward question, who are the laity? Newman answered, the church would look foolish without them. That was a joke. <laughs> Furthermore, as a reader of scripture, I take seriously that the creator sees our bodies as inherently good, not just when they get us what we want, but in and of themselves. Now is not the time to refute misreadings of St. Paul as a platonic dualist, except to point out that for Paul, pneuma or spirit is opposed to sarks or flesh, which has more to do with wayward human habits and desires than our material existence. While Paul's favorite metaphor for the nascent church is to soma, the body. And though the late second century church father Tertullian eventually went off the Montanist deep end, he was, at his most orso he was at his most orthodox in asserting caro cardo salutis. The flesh is the hinge of salvation. The trouble with virtual visits, by contrast, is the Gnostic quality afforded by the pair of screens, the providers, and the patients that dematerialize place and body in ways we have yet to adequately address. I used to be appalled at what people would say to one another on online via uh, to say what to one another online via email or so-called social media, which seems like a uh, increasingly a, um, a, a paradoxical uh, oxymoron. Um, 
I imagine they would, they would not say these things to each other face to face. I fear now that 20 years of the Internet's bad example has been an all too effective catechesis for today's nasty exchanges that pass for public discourse. I don't know if the Internet has dumbed us down, but it certainly has nastied us down. And I'm not sure how to repair the damage to our shared life. When we stand in the presence of another person, it should be more difficult than it is now to condemn, denounce, or own those whose habits and affections offend us. With the advent of computerized medical system, it's difficult enough to get a medical provider to look you in the face when you're in the same room. Think how much harder it is for her to attend or to honor your physical presence when you're only an image on a screen. Putting aside the theological language for a moment, let me offer a provider's eye view of what it's like instead to see a patient in the flesh. The doctor tugs at her stethoscope. She stands outside the examining room door. The patient on the other side is new to the practice. According to the electronic medical encounter document, he's here to, quote, establish care. The front desk is calling his previous physician's office to obtain his medical records, but for now at least, there are none to review. The doctor knows nothing about the person she's about to see except a name, age, and gender. In a matter of seconds, she will open the door, greet her new patient, and ask him to tell his story. But before any words are spoken, in the first moment they stand face to face, she is already responsible for a person she can never truly know. He has come in search of help, either to get well or to remain so, a call to which she must somehow respond without coercion or intent to harm. No matter how medically informed or rights conscious the patient is, the doctor's skills, knowledge, and experience endow her with power, privileges, and duties he trusts will redound to his benefit. In a limited but very real sense, she is now responsible for his health, his wholeness, his life. The particular features of this unmediated doctor-patient relationship, grave responsibilities, vast unknowns, asymmetric duties, correspond rather well to, with the philosophy of Emmanuel Levinas, who found these particularities in all direct encounters try as we may to ignore them. For Levinas, seeing the face of another person is a moment of fraught privilege. In it, an unknowable but recognizable other addresses me and calls me to account, a summons prior to and independent of words. This responsibility to the other is not a deduction from abstract principles, but an immediate and intuitive experience. Much of the awesome power of that experience dissipates with the Gnostic effect of computer screens and internet connections. In the, in the direct encounter, I apprehend a vulnerable, dependent human person beyond myself, and in that apprehension, I claim my own vulnerability, dependence, and perhaps compassion. The ultimately unknowable other challenges and disrupts the complacent I through recognition and concern for justice, modulated by my own cultural inheritance, experience, and expectations. How one responds to the call to the other suggests an ethic Levinas gestures toward without systematically defining. I can ignore, reject, or act counter to my responsibility, but the transcendent other is not for me to control. Levinas avoids theological language in his philosophical writing, yet locates a, quote, trace of the divine in the other who makes nearly infinite moral demands. A face, Levinas writes, is, quote, a trace of itself given over to my responsibility, but to which I am wanting and faulty. It is though I were responsible for his mortality and guilty for surviving. As someone who saw firsthand how readily abstract principles justified state-sponsored mass murder in the early 20th century and the mid-20th century, Levinas did not shy from unfashionably ancient moral terms like guilt and debt. How can we recover some of the goods that Levinas gestures toward here? Unlike Levinas, I'm not a Talmud scholar, and I must appeal to my own Christian tradition shaped of late by my practices as a Benedictine oblate, trying 
and more often than not failing to embody some of St. Benedict's ancient rule in my life as a layperson in the world. And parenthetically, I add, none of what I say here should be conflated with Rod Dreher's so-called Benedict option, which is an entirely different matter. Compared to Mr. Dreher, I consider myself more of a paleo-Benedictine. <laughs> and I think it's perhaps best to leave that digression uh, for another time. Benedict's rule for common life is too rich for me to explicate here. For now, I'll name just two practices I take to be relevant to the subject. The first is hospitality, something that seems conspicuously absent in hospitals today. Yet hospitality and hospital derive from the single Latin word hospes, which can, be, which can mean both guest and host. What's more, these words share a root with the English word hostile, Linguists trace this surprising connections back to a Proto-Indo-European root, rosti, which can mean guest, host, stranger, and foreigner. This jumble of contradictory meanings also appears in the ancient Greek word xenos, from which the 4th century Byzantine xenodokia, the first true hospitals, took their name. Etymologically, then, xenophobia may be less about fearing the stranger than fearing what we, as the host, might be asked to do. In most traditional cultures, hospitality is understood as a duty and a danger at the same time. Host and guest enter a relationship of mutual obligation. The host offers protection, inquires after the guest's need, doing her best to meet them. The guest does not abuse the host's generosity and sincerely pledges to reciprocate but a guest's inability to repay the favor should make no difference to the host. Chapter 53 of the Rule of St. Benedict says, quote, all guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ. That sets a pretty high bar, especially when, you, when it might literally make you sick. But the practice of hospitality requires the virtue of courage, which doesn't mean you're not afraid, but that you are afraid and you do it anyway. A hospitable hospital would welcome all patients, not at unnecessary risk to its healthcare workers, but through a series of calculated risks inherent to the profession, addressing present need before taking into account ability to pay, documentation status, cognitive ability, or productive potential. That's well worth remembering in a time of contagion and social distancing, whether we're staffing hospitals, debating public policy, thinking about shut-in neighbors or opening the door to strangers. Hospitality is risky business, but from Abraham's day to ours, when has it been otherwise? The second habit is stewardship, a word whose long fascinating history is too convoluted to recount here. As used today, however, faithful stewardship requires an awareness of place, need, and limits. Chapter 31 of St. Benedict's Rule lists duties of the monastery cellarer, the monk who manages the material goods of the community. And I'll quote this uh, at some length here. He must show every care and concern for the sick, children, guests, and the poor, knowing for certain that he will be held accountable for all of them on the day of judgment. He will regard all utensils and goods of the monastery as sacred vessels of the altar, aware that nothing is to be neglected. He should not be prone to greed, nor be wasteful or extravagant with the goods of the monastery, but should do everything with moderation and according to the abbot's orders. Above all, let him be humble. If goods are not available to me to request, he will offer a kind word in reply, for it is written, a kind word is better than the best gift. Virtual visits, then, are best used prudentially, attending to the place one practices, the needs of the particular patient, the limits of what can and can't be done without direct presence. The good of the body is honored by face-to-face -face encounters where the ritual of the physical exam is done attentively, indeed reverently, neglecting nothing. In the face-to-face -face encounter, the stethoscope and the reflex hammer become <laughs> vessels sacred vessels of the altar.
The apparent advantages of the online virtual visit provides a false economy, a missed opportunity to both confirm what the patient history and lab data indicate and to embody the Levinasian obligation best and perhaps only appreciated with physical presence. This applies even and perhaps especially for patients with mental illness, with its alienating effects that make true human contact so important. What would it be like to conduct our debates about technology, medical, source, medical resource allocation, and regional or local mitigation practices with this understanding of good communal stewardship? How would our lives be forced to change if we look seriously at our places and practices, quote, aware that nothing is to be neglected? What might happen if we accepted the limits of our technological fixes for individual problems and used what's at hand for the community's good, especially our presence, our embodied witness in a time of grief and isolation? I could go on, but I think this is enough to start a conversation. And since we're gathered here together in person and face to face, why don't we use that time well, honoring each other with our attention, our words, and our respect? These are goods we can't afford to lose if we wish to remain human. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'm reminded of that uh, scene at the end of Barry's essay, Health is Membership, where I think it's his brother uh, is in the hospital and, and is having a medical procedure done and it takes too long and the doctors are clearly flustered and the family's worried. And the nurse comes out, I think it's a nurse, comes out and says a bunch of stuff with probabilities and, uh, and uh, his, his wife, John's wife, is clearly not satisfied. And then the nurse gives her a hug. And that there is the possibility of healing human touch, even uh, with with difficult institutional settings. And the last line, well, go ahead. Is it off? And the last line. Hello, hello. There you go. I'm turning now to the music of Mozart. <laughs> um, uh, the, the 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 last line after that uh, of of the essay is after the woman uh, the 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 nurse gives him a hug. Is uh, Wendell Berry says. And that brings us to a starting place. Yeah. That's where you start. Yeah. Um, if I can have the privilege of asking the first question, you know, uh, Adam, you ended with this idea of home births as one starting place. Are there any other kinds of sites where you see a recovery of not not the you know Amazon healthcare virtual thing, but on the other hand, a recovery of a human kind of medical practice? <laughs> I mean, I, I can imagine um, or I can think about other sites of medicalization that are ripe for that kind of uh, disruption, <laughs> that kind of Silicon Valley word. But um, I haven't observed. I mean, maybe Brian knows more and can answer that question more, but I haven't observed too many other things like the kind of attempt to move birth out of the home, which I want to clarify, by the way, like you can't always do that. Not everybody sure. should do that. Sure. That's not what I was trying to say at all. But I mean, we didn't have a home birth for various medical reasons. But, you know, in those circumstances where it's possible, having thought about it differently makes it possible to do yeah. something different. And, but I haven't, I, I don't really see any other actual practical example. Yeah. Uh, I, what comes to mind is um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, which uh, the United States uh, medicalizes in ways that a lot of the, the rest of the world doesn't. A friend of mine spent uh, a year in Florence, and his son, who had been diagnosed with attention deficit disorder in the United States, was told by his uh, teacher in, in Florence that he was un poco agitato. <laughs> um, um, and I remember uh, a, a researcher from the University of Connecticut who, who said, I have labored, uh, I said, I have toiled in the vineyard of ADHD for 20 years, and I've come to the conclusion that there is no such unitary diagnosis. That uh, this is a final common pathway of, of things that we've medicalized and, and decided to treat in a particular way. 
Um, so I, I don't know how you untie that Gordian knot, but there's there, uh, but it's a it's a knot that should be slashed somehow. Yeah, I mean that. Yes, I mean ADHD is a fantastic example of medicalization, and it makes me think of something I didn't talk about, but I thought about putting in there, which is, I think that in some cases at least, demedicalizing will have. Um, it won't be directly related to medical institutions so much as it might be related to other institutions. I mean, ADHD, the place where you really confront that pressure to think of yourself as, as that, having that label is usually in a school. Um, and so if you're trying to push back, it may not be only or so much about uh, what you do with you know, a doctor who wants to diagnose you with that, but what you do with a school that wants, you, wants to diagnose you with that and treat you accordingly. And maybe that means you find another school or you homeschool or or something like that. But it may have to do with other institutions, not only medicine. Good, other questions? We have a mic here. Hi, thank you both. Um, so a couple th thoughts for both of you. Um, and one thing to just add on that question that came to mind was just um, kind of tying into the whole um, theme that's been running throughout the day that, you know, community recovers a lot of these lost goods, you know, a lot of things that once people learn how to do in the home or in the context of the family, they realize they're not so hard. And part of that um, is is health. And um, as like um, uh, so, someone I was thinking a lot for both of your talks was um, Illich, who talks about the expropriation of health. Like we don't the system doesn't want us to think that we can, you know, keep ourselves healthy and that it's all up to, um, I guess he calls it the new priesthood of the, the medical doctors, but um, um, just reclaiming in the context of family and community, the ability to take care of each other and, and have healthy um, practices. And like Wendell Berry says that um, to speak of the health of an individual is almost a contradiction in terms because it, it has to be in the context of community and then um, in terms of what we were talking about, just people are, have been asking today, what sort of things can we build? And, you know, um, um, are there anything good, any good things happening? Um, one thing in that, that I'm involved with, um, which is more along the lines of what Adam was talking about, is um, kind of rethinking medical education in terms of virtue and um, um, the medical school that I am I'm, um, I'm completing my training at, I'm, I'm, we're trying to decide, uh, you know, whether to stay in this large health system or not. But um, uh, we have a group that's working on, you know, a curriculum that would be promoting students thinking about what does it mean to be healthy, what does it mean to be a good doctor. And um, having it be situated in that kind of what you what you talked about, built, um, goods internal to the practice of medicine instead of bringing in external, you know, ideologies, um, which I'm not sure if we'll be able to prevent, you know, the, the institution at large from trying to bring those things in. But um, I think at least as as doctors, we have the benefit of claiming that we have this good health that we are stewards of instead of as Illich said, engineers of the dreams of reason. You, there's, there was a lot packed into what you were, were saying, so I, I'm gonna try to respond with three short vignettes. One is um, to fill, fill out the quotation you had of Wendell. Um, it's uh, a community that is a place and all its creatures is the smallest unit of health and to speak of the health of an isolated individual is a contradiction in terms. Um, in another essay, he says that uh, autonomy, in practice, there is no such thing as autonomy. There is, o there is only, in practice, there is only the distinction between responsible and irresponsible forms of dependence. Um, second, uh, Stanley Harawas said, if you want to know what the medieval Catholic Church was like, go to a teaching hospital. <laughs> because there are people who dress up in special uh, vestments, speak a language that you don't understand that has everything to do about you um, but you are not really included in the conversation. And I speak that as a wretched papist, so. Um, um, 
Um, and the third uh, is, um, uh, what was the third? Um, you asked, oh, uh, uh, oh yes, now I remember. Um, you were talking about uh, um, medical education and, and, and incorporating the virtues. Um, one of the things that they used to do uh, where, I, where I taught at the University of Cincinnati was the first year medical students would get together and write their, their medical oath as first-year medical students, they would take them when they uh, would graduate uh, in, in three years. Um, that was as, as stupid as when my wife and I wrote our wedding vows. <laughs> Those of you who are married and have been married for a few years realize, I, I hope by now, that you had no idea what you were getting yourself into. And if you, if you actually did, you might have thought a whole lot harder about it. Um, but it's a wonderful thing that my wife and I are married. Uh, but the, the, the hubris of, th of thinking that we could write our, met our, our own our vows when we had no idea what we were getting ourselves into is breathtaking. It's even all the more breathtaking. Somebody who has just entered into medical education and is still learning uh, the, the Krebs cycle and has not touched a patient yet is going to make and is come up with an oath to characterize his or her career. That's well, I, I'll avoid what I want to call that. Um, it, 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 it's uh, as Jason was suggesting. It's another stool fan blade interaction. <laughs> there was a lot packed in there, and I also had three things I wanted to say, and now I can't remember what the three things were. But I'll I'll try to go. Th I th one of them was, I think this is a thread that has been running through many theme, many of the, the panels and the speakers, which is that if we are, uh, the technology thing, for example, the, our, our first um, panel, we often talk about um, making better choices with technology and uh, wanting technology to do good rather than harm, so on and so forth. And there's this good that we're seeking, but there's always the other good of seeking it with other people. And the thing to do is not only to like be as virtuous as you can, but to find other people who you can be doing the same things with because you, you need other people. Like it's not good to be virtuous alone in a sense. Um, and so I think part of the project for, that we're talking about is how do we talk together about how we can live together in a way that can help us each deal with the problems that we're all trying to talk about because I want to raise kids who aren't addicted to screens, but I also want them to have friends. And so I got to have other families around who are on the same page so that they can have friends who are not addicted to screens. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the trouble. And so I think with, I mean, it applies to medicine as well. You need other people who are trying to think through these same problems, what is and is not a medical problem, what should the institution look like, but you need those other people too. And I mean, it's really good to, you know, bring death back into the home, but not if you're just alone. You don't want to die alone, even if you're at home. You want other people to be there with you. So um, it's as much a project of community building as it is a project of thinking through what the goods are. Um, I, I, yeah, there was a second thing I wanted to say, unless you wanted to respond to it. So the Wendellberry quote, the smallest unit, right? What was it? Smallest, a community that is a place and all its creatures is the smallest unit of health. Right. One thing that I've been trying to think through is how everything I just said and that line of thinking in particular is so easily flipped on its head and used to justify the opposite where we appeal to things like community and taking care of each person, and it really just ends up being a way to justify all of the isolation and the treating each person as a vector of disease that we've seen over the past two years. And it's really, I mean, even for me, it's, even for me, that sounds really arrogant. <laughs> I, I try to think through, the, through these kinds of things for a living, and it's, it's hard to put into words how that rhetorical switch happens, but we can see it happening all the time, and it, we can feel that it's so easy to use a word like community to justify the collapse of community that we see around us. And I think we really need to be paying attention to that and trying to figure out how that happens so we're alert to it. 
This could go on for a long time, but we are uh, running out of time. So I'm going to stop it there and maybe we can uh, pick these guys' brains uh, over beverages uh, a couple of hours. Next time, we conclude the conference with the civics lesson from Mark Mitchell, Rachel Ferguson, and Bill Kaufman. Until then, thanks for pulling up a chair. Find your way home. Find your way